Stories. Everybody's got them, and we can learn from each other. History can be traced through letters and writings, but the one thing that has remained throughout the generations is the oral tradition. Oral history is one attempt to pass along the stories, tales, musings, and remembrances of one family for the benefit of listeners for generations to come. Join us now for this episode of Oral History with Jeff Zulkowski. Thank you for joining us today. I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart that we have achieved a milestone of the 10th podcast of Oral History. And my wife's giggling, but you have to understand that most podcasts don't make it this far. Most people get tired of it or they think it's not working, but the fact that we're still here is a wonderful thing. The even better thing is that you're still here and you're still listening. So thank you so much. Thank you for more than 110 likes on Facebook. Thank you for uh, growth in downloads that has now exceeded 240. Um, We're just thrilled that what God has given us to do here is being consumed and people are, are taking it, commenting on it, and caring for us. So thank you so much. Again, oral history is not about us. It's about you, the listener. And so we want to share with you in episode 10 some of the biggest, most joyous times in our life and some of the most difficult things that got us there and and, and afterward. And so we want to talk to you today about the adoption years. And for us, we spoke about in episode nine, just how hard it was to get here. So I'll let Riss recap a little bit for you, just the some of the sheer heartache that we had after we found out that I was infertile and how that brought us to the point of deciding that we were going to adopt. Yeah, I was, um, as I said last podcast, uh, I was completely devastated. I, I can't remember not wanting to, you know, be pregnant and have a baby. And I know it's not an easy thing to go through. No, I knew that, but I just have always thought it's just an amazing, amazing thing. And I, I also want to say, um, in my experience, and uh, I actually have another sister um, who who could not have children of her own, and they adopted. She and her husband adopted. But I, I never was, I mean, I had my moments of, I I believe being wistful when I had other friends get pregnant, but I was never, I never didn't, was not happy for them because I felt like their pregnancy wasn't about me at all. I could be happy for them and be wistful for me, but I wasn't angry with them and it wasn't, but it's, it's very difficult for people. I know this. Um, because I had friends who were pregnant and I don't know, they didn't know how to tell me. Um, but I can rejoice when others rejoice. And I know my sister felt the same way. It wasn't about us at all. Um, and we could keep those things private, but we wanted to love our friends. And so I, I would say, I guess, don't not talk about things with your friends. If you know people who are suffering from infertility, don't not tell them, let them and and I know people are different, but at least don't ignore them because that just makes it worse. Say, you know, I understand this could be difficult for you, but 
you know, I'm having a baby shower and I would really like you to come if you feel you can. So just try to be sensitive, but don't don't not say anything because you don't want to hurt them because that hurts even worse. Right. But um, I I felt like I was I was devastated and then I was angry. Um, and uh, this there came a point in time where and Jeff was kind of letting me steer the boat at that point because he knew obviously he was devastated as well but you can't adopt on your own yeah as a couple you both have to be completely in um or it just doesn't work uh, but the summer before we actually started the paperwork i um had shingles <laughs> i know you're like where is this going well i had okay i ha came down with shingles which are extremely painful and um, a couple people that I worked with had never had chicken pox. So I had to isolate from them. So I spent a week at home, which we worked full time. Jeff and I worked all the time. We were never home alone. So I got to spend a week by myself thinking about everything and getting angrier and angrier. And finally, one day I just had it out with God. I was angry with him and I let him know it. I was yelling and stomping around going, I do not get it. We did everything right. I I remained a virgin. Like I wanted this to be special and to, and I kept myself pure for my husband like you wanted. And, uh, and it was hard, but I did it. And so did he. And really, <laughs> I was, I just couldn't believe it. And but I think God wanted me to get to that point. And by the way, God can handle your anger. Um, he can handle any emotion you throw at him. And he's still going to love you. What I got from him wasn't reproach. Um, I didn't hear an actual voice. But this thought came into my mind that had never occurred to me before. It, and it was if God said to me, Yes, I know that, but Jeff is the one you needed to love you the way you deserve to be loved. And it floored me. It literally stopped me in my tracks. And I sat down because I said, you know, you, I know you had Jeff for me. I know he's the one, but why did you make him infertile? I just don't get it. And that was God's answer to me. And I realized, you know... I know that we probably bug each other a lot, but Jeff loves me in a way that shows me God's love for me. It's sacrificial. It's, it overlooks annoying things that I do, like leaving cabinet doors open and, or half open, or I'm messy and piles of things everywhere. Whereas he is a, you know, type A. Uh, but he, despite those things, he loves me tangibly all the time. And I've seen, I've, you know, I had lived long enough to see people, friends get married, divorced, like just see relationships and what I wanted out of a relationship and what I didn't want. And I thought, wow, I really hit the jackpot. And if that's who, you know, to get that kind of love from someone, okay, 
I'll take it. So he can't father a child. All right. I will give up that dream because of what I had in my husband. And that started my healing. And um, then we, I said to him at some point soon after that, I'm ready. I want to adopt. Let's do this. And um, we had friends who had adopted, I don't know, two or three times by that point, friends from church. And uh, the the wife had, had been a social worker. And so I went to her and I said, well, who did you guys use? And um, she said, we used Adoption by Gentle Care. It was a um, adoption agency, private adoption agency based out of Columbus, Ohio. Um, and the the pandemic actually closed their doors. Uh, which is was very sad for me, but uh, for over 20 years, they did wonderful work in uh, placing children with uh, adoptive families. They were they were wonderful, and we thought, well, she was a social worker and she did the homework, so why invent the, reinvent the wheel? So we. I'm a big fan of saying, <laughs> work smarter, not, not harder. Yeah, work work smarter, not harder, <laughs> and we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. We followed their lead, and it was great like they they had done all the homework they had Mm -hmm. looked at multiple agencies and they had they had exhaustively interviewed people and she knew the questions to ask being a social worker so we just kind of stepped into it based on that and the trust that we had in them Mm -hmm. and the trust that we had in god and said god this is the direction we're going to go and we never we never looked no we never looked back we never looked at any other agency right and so we feel i remember I have a picture somewhere on an external hard drive of one of us holding up the envelope um, of our application, and we mailed it on September 29th, 2009. Um, I don't know why I remember that, but um, so you had to start out with mailing this application, and it was, the application wasn't the longest part, but then you had to do some training like a two-day training, and sometimes you can wait up to six months to get that training. Well, so here it is, the end of September, and I called about the training, and they're like, actually, we have an opening in the November 6th training. I'm like, we'll do it. I didn't even ask Jeff, you know, do we have time? <laughs> you know, can you take time I, off? I'm I like, would have made the time. Yeah, we would have made the time. So I'm like, yes, we will go. So it was just, God just kept having things fall into place of, of us, you know, getting our training. Someone, we had to go to Columbus for two days. Somebody had a, a voucher for a hotel stay that they gave to us. Um, I mean, it was just so many things that were, that kind of fell together. And we chose to be in the African-American biracial program, meaning that we really didn't care what race our child was. Now, before anyone gets up in arms about, well, why would anyone care? Um, It's not that people are racist and care. It's um, what's in the best interest. It's it's what's in the best interest of the child. We had um, a couple that was in our training. Um, They, they were like, we are both middle school teachers in Holmes County, Ohio. They said, we literally don't know a single black person. It's Amish country. It's Amish country. And it's a lot of rolling hills and farmland. And it's just like, they're just, we don't know a black person. We don't, we don't have any professional person that our child can look up to. We don't want to do that to a child of color 
or mixed race to be surrounded by completely homogenous white people. Uh, so please take it that way. And that most of the time it's, and our agency was wonderful in saying, look, it's, it's all about the child and it's all about the birth mom um, and birth family. Like they are sacrificing a lot for you to have a child. So we're going to fight for them, which I felt was really good. You know, so many times, you know, there, there are bad people out there who will take advantage of um, young women who are in a bind. And, um, but our agency, I felt was, they were great about defending the birth families and, but yet loving on us and saying, look, and, and I remember our social worker looking us right in the eye and saying, at the end of this, you're going to have a baby. However long that takes, you're going to have one. Um, even the tr even the training was was eye opening. Um, mm -hmm. I recall one aspect of the training was that we were given a cup and then a series of little colored beads in multiple other cups, and we were to put a, a white bead in if we were if we were Caucasian, and so we put two white beads in our cup, and then the questions became very simple. It, is anyone in your closest circle of your family, brothers and sisters, is anybody any different race? So put the appropriate bead in. Well, I had, I have a, I have a sister-in-law who's American Indian. So we had a red bead mm -hmm. and then we had, and when we were done, we had this cup full of white beads, even though we live mostly white, mostly beads. white beads, even though we live in you know, suburban Cleveland. So it was eye-opening to us that we even had to kind of change the way we thought and the things that we would do to be able to bring a child of color into our home and give them the best possible formula for success. Mm -hmm. So um, all of that said, we, we went through the training in November and, and that's where it begins. Well, our very next step was, well, we need you to go and get fingerprinted. And that sounds like a simple thing, but for us, it wasn't a simple thing. And Riss can tell you why. Well, for Jeff and I, it was okay. Um, Cause now you can go multiple places and they just scan them digitally and they literally go there immediately. So usually when they say, oh, it'll take a week, it, it's usually less than, or three days, I think, 72 hours. Usually it's less than an hour and they literally have have the fingerprints. But um, at that time, Grandpa, Jeff's dad lived with us um, and he had worked with his hands all his life and um, they could not, he had no, they could not scan his fingerprints. They were not detailed enough for him to get them scanned. Well, he had a couple of things going. He worked around electronics. Mm -hmm. He was a cook. He basically wore his fingers down, but he well, also had mm -hmm. he also had diabetes and had no nerves there. So he he his fingers were basically smooth. Yeah, and his <laughs> circulation was bad and anyway, so couldn't get his fingerprints so we're like but everyone over the age of 18 has to be fingerprinted and so they can do um federal background check and whatever so this was the very first thing we some, did and first, the very last thing we finished oh my gosh yeah because we ha so we finally found a place we had to go to berea somewhere found a place that still did ink block because nobody does digital stuff anymore because 
I mean, nobody does ink blot stuff. You know, you see on on the um, the police shows and everything how they roll their fingers in ink and do. No, they don't do that. Nobody does that. So you have to find specialized places. And the girl who did it said, you know, we in seventy five dollars each time for each person to get this done. And the girl said they're not going to be able to read these. I don't even know why they make us do this. So. We sent them in and they came back and said, nope, can't read it. You're going to have to do it again. So we had to go back to the same place. And the sweet girl, she remembered us. And this was a couple months later. And she's like, I'm not even going to charge you. Like she wouldn't take money for it. She's like, it's ridiculous that they're making you do this. Because after they do it twice, she knows this. She's like, we're going to do it two times. And they're going to deny it both times. Then they'll just run the background checks just using his social security number and it'll be fine because we tried twice but i said oh my gosh i can't yeah so did it again and of course it came back and they couldn't read it so um, from what september so to almost I don't know, november may to almost may because that was the last thing that we could that we had to, we had to have done and you have this whole checklist of things you have to finish before you're before your profile can go live for the agency. Um, and it was crazy because this was what was holding us up. Now, mind you, we had a stack of paperwork almost an inch high that we had to do as well, which can be daunting. And there were some days that I'm like, I just can't. I mean, grandpa's fingerprints aren't back yet, so I can't even look at this today. <laughs> but we had to get CPR certified and a wonderful nurse who went to our church offered to do it for us for just the cost of the booklets that we had to buy. Um, and she spent her whole Sunday afternoon certifying teaching us, us, teaching us CPR, um, infant and adult CPR and testing us and then getting us certified. By the way, you get the AED. I know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> just, yeah. So we had to do that. We had to find a place to take a parenting class which, and by the way, as we, and if if you've done this, you know that as you're going through this, if you've been a foster parent or anything, like the training that you have to go through, you're like, I think everybody should have to, any parent should be required to do this. Right. Um, there were a lot of things I knew about the parenting class, but Jeff didn't know. I've been taking care of kids since I can remember. Um, so I was babysitting from the time I was 11, I think. Um, you know, but there's a lot of stuff that there are a few things that I learned even. And, you know, he's like, I've, I never babysat, you know, little ones. Like, I don't know what to do. And so, um, I think it would be helpful just to not be a nervous first time parent. Um, but yeah, so we had to get a parenting class and get that certificate and send it in, you know, we're constantly, I'm constantly calling the agency. Okay, what do we have to do? And I have the checklist and I'm double checking. Did you get this? Okay. And did they, this come back? And one, um, of, one of the most daunting parts of that whole process was filling out a form about social medical histories. Tell them about that. Oh, the one with all the teeny mm -hmm. tiny boxes. So when you're adopting, um, they, this is a state required form. So it's the same, you get the same form if you're a foster parent. And it's, I don't know, at least three pages. And the boxes, I swear to you, they're the tiniest 
tiniest boxes. Six or eight point type. They're yeah, really, yeah. really small. Like, yeah. So six, think six or eight point type. And it's asks you questions about everything. Um, you know, they ask you about race. And so that's not a big deal. But then, then it goes, okay, would you be willing to adopt a child who has mild hearing loss? Yes or no? Would you adopt a child who has moderate hearing loss? Would you adopt a child who has... And and everything in between, yep. um, hearing, sight, um, and birth defects, birth de- like any every kind. Um, and for fostering, it even goes, you know, and it's the same thing for fostering. But you know, we're talking about a child who hasn't been born, but we still have to answer the same questions, like you know, a child who has been physically abused by a parent. We're like, I don't. <laughs> yeah, that's not possible. So it's confusing, but you just. Anyway, a, a child but, that is, it, is the product of rape, a child that's yeah, the product of like, incest. Well, yeah, I mean, anyway, so it's it's kind of it is daunting. Some of them you can answer right away, and some of them like I, I gotta think about this. Like I don't, I don't know. Well, and um, yeah, it was, but it's just it's front and back, like three. So it ends up being like five pages, front and back. Uh, we're just and. And adoption by general care, their their policy was that you would fill out this form, and then if they had a placement that they wanted to kind of discuss with you, and you were close, they would call you with what they called a pre-call and say, okay, we know you answered this on the questionnaire, but we wanted to ask if you would consider some of these things. One of the things that we had never really put a lot of thought into was the issue of fetal alcohol syndrome. And we had to do some investigating because the first two placements we had, no, the first no, place, placement, not placement, the first pre-call we had mm-hmm. was for a lady who had, she had reported a lot of alcohol use in her third trimester. And the agency said, typically, whatever they report, there's probably more than what they're reporting. And there were just there was alcoholism in our family, and we were really struggling with what to do. And I put a phone call into the Department of Health and Human Services of the government because I wanted to know. Yeah. And somebody called me back the next day. <laughs> do you do you understand how unusual that is? Mm-hmm. Somebody from the government called me back one day later to discuss fetal alcohol syndrome. And and that first pre-call that we had, we came to the conclusion that at our age and what we had, this was our basically our one chance, that that was probably not something we could do. And that was another real ache in our heart to mm-hmm. say no to that possibility. And, and and, and it's not that we weren't trusting God. It's just that we knew what our limitations were, and we had to say no to that one. The second mm-hmm. pre-call we got dealt with a lot of drug use, a lot of not, prescription drug right. use. And not drug abuse, but the, the, the birth mom actually had physical issues, um, very painful. Uh, so she was on several pain medications, not not abusing them, but just so she could function. And I was in tears on that one because I thought, well, who, who's going to take this baby? Like I'm, and I'm all worried about that. And finally, our, our social worker, Megan was said, 
you know, that's not your job. That's my job. You, you need to say yes to what you feel you can handle. Um, and she's like, if it makes you feel better, I already have one family who said, yes, please give them our profile as a suggest, you know, like we're, we're willing to take that child if the birth parent chooses us. So that did make me feel better. But just remembering that it's not my job to, to find the baby a family. She's like, no, no, that's Megan said, it's, it's my job as her social worker to find a family. You need to do what you need to do. So that was really helpful too, because my heart is just like, I want to, I want them all, you know, I can't watch, I can't watch the commercials of starving children because I just want to go and take them all. Yeah. Um, I can't handle it. My heart can't, um, I don't ignore the fact that they're there, but I, uh, visually, I just can't see it. Um, so that was, that was difficult, you know, to get your brain around too. So let me do a little recap of the timeline here. So September of 2009, we finally mailed in the application. November 6th, we start the training and kind of start climbing the hill. This is May Yeah, so of we finally filled out all our paperwork. And we finally get it all in. We we start getting these pre-calls in May. Well, because and we had to we had to have $10,000 to get our profile activated. Yeah. And I think we took out a loan for that. We did. We took out a line of credit for that. That was fine. We did that. But the other amazing thing that happened along this is there there are grants and things available to help you pay for adoption, private adoption. Um, well, at the time that I filled out ours, I um, there was a link on our agency's website for um, for a grant, um, for a matching grant for our match fee, which is once you get um, once you, I think it was once you got matched with a family, there's a certain fee that goes in because then they. I don't know, get you all together, whatever. Covers all the legal fees. Yeah, it covers and... legal fees, like whatever. But um, so the match, the cost for matching was like $14,800 or something. So anyway, this this um, grant application was about a page long. And you got to understand, most grant applications are incredibly long. And they want to know everything and there's nothing private and they want a copy of your home study and they want blah, 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 blah. So I fill out this one page application and um, they notified the agency that we got a match fee for the entire amount. And I'm like, okay. Now the social worker said, no, I don't. This is my first time, right? My social worker said, you don't understand like they they give certain amounts, you know, sometimes a thousand, two thousand dollars, you know, whatever. She says, I've never known anyone in all my time here who has gotten a, a grant to match the entire fee. Yeah. I go, oh, <laughs> great. You know, and, you know, uh, I mean, we later years, we considered adoption again. And I never saw that application again. Never saw that grant anywhere. I don't. I don't know if they discontinued it or whatever, but God knew that I mean, even in our ignorance, 
of so many things. He's like, no, I got you. I, God I'll take was, care of it. God was orchestrating events right and yeah. left. There were a number of occasions where the leadership at Cuyahoga Valley Church, where I was on staff, would just walk up to me and go, somebody handed me this check for you. Here's a check for $1,000 or here's a check for $2,000. And it was just blowing. Or envelopes of money, $500. It, it was blowing or... our mind all the, all the way along. Well, okay, so we're in May. We've had these two pre-calls. Things go a little quiet until July. June, yeah, June or July. I was getting ready to... Uh, actually, I was driving to New York to visit my friend Krista. Hello, Krista. And um, I got a call from the agency saying that um, we'd been matched. And um, a birth mom had chosen us. And uh, she wanted to set up a time to meet us. So... I'm like, oh my gosh. So I called Jeff and anyway, we set it up for after I came back. And uh, so we met the birth mom. Um, at and a restaurant in... At a restaurant in Columbus. So we traveled there because she um, couldn't travel. And she was, I don't know, I think it was about six weeks before she gave birth. and um, Which is rather early. It's actually, and our, our, our um, usually... In our agency, anyway, um, the social worker had told us at one point, you know, the the farther out they are from birth, it's actually the more likely that the that they will parent the child Um, because it gets more real the closer it gets. So she had warned us that in up front. And we said that, you know, that's okay. We still want to meet her, you know. Um, and we were trusting the Lord for that. And so we met birth mom and, um, our social worker was there the whole time. Um, so we all ate lunch together and talked and the birth mom was adamant that she was not going to parent this child. She actually brought, um, sonogram, a sonogram picture and gave it to us. And it was a little girl and she had a lot of hair and, um, so we were kind of excited. We were cautiously excited. You were a little more cautious than I was. Yeah. I was I was finally starting to let my heart go just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like we walked to a we walked to a a store that sold infant clothing not too long after that and I bought a onesie. It's just a purple out, onesie. Just out of hope that this was our child. Mm-hmm. Well, and I have to under I have to say too, you know, I'm I'm I hope that I shared everything that our social worker had said with him, but I was the one who usually talked to our, to our social worker as Jeff was at work. But, you know, I, I'm sure that I told him, you know, some of these things, but I was really holding back a bit because I'm like, all right, I'm just going to, I'll believe it when I see it kind of thing. And um, anyway, long story short, at one day, our social worker called me to tell me that she had, um, it was getting close to the due date for the birth mom. So she had um, called the hospital where they'd arranged for her to go to just let the hospital social worker know that one of their moms was coming. And the hospital social worker goes, oh, she's already here. She has, she already had the baby. And at that point, our social worker knew, Megan knew pretty much, she was pretty certain that the mom was going to parent the child. Um, but um, we had we had said even at the lunch, if you change your mind, just tell us it's your baby like that, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm not going to change my mind. And um, 
of course she did. She, she named her. She was telling our social worker that she just needed more time and that it was hard, but she was, she, I can't do this. I'm going to go to school. I've got three other kids. Um, no, no, I'm going to go through with adoption. But we found later that she was telling the nurses that she wasn't, that she was keeping the baby. So that was another devastation. Jeff took it really, really hard. Yeah. And so we, for the sake of time, we're obviously going to have adoption part, part two. two. Um, but we're, we're working our way toward the end of 2010. And our, and our hope, and, and again, this is not a tax issue, but that plays into some things. We were hopeful to have a child before the end of the year. And we were into December and it just, we had come to the conclusion that it's probably not going to happen for us this year. Mm -hmm. So we were starting to settle into what's God, what is God doing? And God surprised us in an amazing way. But first I do want to mention too, um, with our failed adoption, um, it was very difficult and you don't really know how to talk about it. Um, because you have those hopes and everything and they're kind of dashed, but you're like, well, but it wasn't actually like we never had the child. And um, so we were kind of trying to grieve, but it was almost like, can we, how do we talk about this? Because I, we've, I'd had friends who'd had miscarriages, um, very good friends who had lost child. She was about two, I believe, the Castellines. And John, if you ever listen to this, I thank you so much for what you said to me because we had seen them at, at church one Sunday. We visited their church on a weekend. Jeff was off and he asked me how we were doing. And I'm like, it's just really hard. But and but it's not like, you know, we had a miscarriage. And he goes, it's exactly like losing a child. This from someone who had lost his two, two and a half year old daughter. Uh, um, and I said, what? You know, because I didn't ever want to equate my loss with that. I didn't want to minimize that. He said, Larissa, you lost your might have been. You, you had a sonogram picture. You had started in your head making plans. Whether you wanted to or not, it was happening. And that's gone. And you're allowed to grieve that. And that was the most wonderful thing that anyone could have said to us, I think. I think that's what helped us heal from that. And we both, Jeff had immediately felt the devastation. Mine happened a little bit later. So we weren't both devastated at the same time. But that helped us grieve that loss. Because, yeah, it was a little girl. I was like, oh, little girl. We had a name picked out. Um, which is the name that we used eventually, but, um, you know, every kind of loss like that is a loss. It's okay to grieve that and to grieve however you feel you need to grieve, um, because it's the only healthy thing that you can do. So don't ever feel like you can't grieve. I mean, if you feel like you have to pick the people that you share your grief with, that's fine too, but... Um, don't ever feel like you can't grieve a loss that's not exactly like someone else's. And again, we're working our way toward the end of 2010. And so we'll share 
how that all played out in the next episode. In episode 11, we'll take you through the joy of our life, Alexa Joy, and how she came to be and how she came to be ours. And we'll take you through um, her birth, the challenges there, the first few months, some of the ups and downs there, all the way through probably the six-month her forever day. Um, we'll do that in episode 11. But for right now, I want to pray us out again, as I often do. And I just want to pray for you, our listener. Again, this is about you. So let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, these challenges that we faced, these difficulties of uh, infertility and and adoption and failed adoptions and the what might have beens. Lord, because you have a plan. You have a plan for us. You promise us that in Jer- Jeremiah 29, 11. And you love us and care for us. And you have the perfect plan. And your perfect plan was an amazing little girl named Alexa Joy. And so we are grateful, Lord. We're grateful for our listeners and the things that they have been through, the difficulties that they have shared with us, the their own kinds of pain that they've been through. We pray, Father, that you would minister to them, that you would comfort them, and that they would press in hard to you in the good times and the bad times. So, Lord, we lift our lives to you. We thank you in advance for what you're going to do in our lives every day because we know you are trustworthy and we know you are faithful. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, episode 11, we're going to tell you about the Alexa Joy years and We'll get into the second part of this adoption story. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Aural History. This has been a production of Z Media and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. Join us again next time.